0: Welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where
1: gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. Hello, and welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, episode number 105 for September 2020. I'm your host, Ken Gagne. For most of my adult life, I've had the pleasure of living in or near Boston, Massachusetts. That means that whether I am walking across campus at MIT where I used to work, hopping the subway in Cambridge, Massachusetts, or attending PAX East, I have the opportunity to encounter some of the most brilliant minds in our country. One person I've repeatedly encountered in all those contexts is Dr. T.L. Taylor, the author, sociologist, and full professor from MIT. And at our last encounter at PAX East 2020, I said, hey, let's stop with the random encounters and do something a little more intentional. And so I'm excited to be talking to TL on this week's Polygamer. Hello, TL.
0: Hey, Ken. This is it's so great to, to be here on your podcast. And it's, a, it's, it's fun to connect with you after seeing you at PAX East right before uh, the pandemic hit. And now, now getting a chance to reconnect with you in this different way.
1: <laughs> I know. I was sitting in the diversity lounge and you came in and we started chatting. And we had no idea that just a week later, the entire world would be different. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. If I knew at PAX East what I knew now, I probably would not have gone to that event at all. Can you imagine 70,000 <laughs> gamers in Boston in one place?
0: I have thought about that on numerous occasions, in particular because I think that same weekend, the um, now what somewhat infamous, was it, Biogen Conference? Yes. Which was a super spreader <laughs> event, <laughs> was happening. Um, so yeah, no, I, it's... I'm very happy to have made it out of it unscathed.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm kind of glad I didn't know what I know now because I loved going to PAX East and I would have hated to have missed it. And we lucked out and nothing happened.
0: Yeah, exactly. We were very lucky. I didn't even get the usual PAX crud. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's true. PAX Online is happening right now. Have you attended any of that?
0: Oh, I, I have to admit I didn't and I didn't even know it was happening online. Have Have you gone? Is it What's it like, if you have?
1: I have not attended, partly because now, six months into the pandemic, I'm sort of experiencing Zoom fatigue and Discord fatigue.
0: Yeah. Another
1: another online event just doesn't jazz me up like it used to.
0: No, it's so true. And I have to admit, for me, part of the draw of PAX is... The in-person vibe of it all, whether that's like running into people like you, seeing people I know, or just like the mass collective experience and all the cosplaying. So, I mean, I I get the value of having it online, but I think part of what I enjoy about it is that (laughs) that mass takeover of the convention center here.
1: Right. I used to get a lot of my in-person interaction by – my day job is fully online, but then at night I would go beyond the faculty at Emerson College in Boston. I get to interact with my students in person – and so when they asked me, do you want to teach online? I'm like, so you want me to work nine to five at my day job online and then go teach six to 10 oh. p.m. online? And I'm like, yeah. it's a little bit too much online. So no.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, isn't I, I've had this kind of strange feeling that through this whole pandemic where, you know, sort of most of my work over the years and my own disposition has been about, you know, the online world and the value of online stuff and not denigrating it but but of course there are those moments where you're like i don't want (laughs) any more or noticing the places where it just doesn't actually work as well as embodied face-to-face interaction so yeah it's it's a we're in a it's a very strange time
1: and i know that that's impacting your career because you're teaching at mit your 2020 curriculum includes a course called games and culture is this the first time you've taught it online
0: it is. It is. Yeah, and that's a class I've been I've been teaching, oh, at this point now probably twenty years in different wow. forms at my prior job, and then and then and then now here at MIT. So yeah, but this is the first time online, and it's an interesting shift. Uh, <laughs> interesting is a black box term for. <laughs> the You know, the good, the bad, and the ugly that right. is online
1: teaching these days. What does one cover in a course called Games and Culture?
0: Yeah, I, basically, it's in some ways, it's really a, a class on the sociology of games. So we do everything from like last week, we were talking about infrastructures and platforms, to we do weeks on gender, race, community management. It's basically all of the kind of social... Socio-cultural, socio-technical stuff rather than formal analysis or, you know, we don't do close readings of games as texts. It's really about the culture in and around
1: gaming. And your students, what do they tend to be majoring in?
0: Like a lot of MIT, those of us who teach in the social science and humanities, most of our students are generally computer science or other STEM fields. And I would say those of us who teach games courses have a disproportionate number of computer science courses. So, you know, we'll get a sprinkling of, I teach in a program called comparative media studies. So we'll have a sprinkling of CMS majors, but for the most part, My students are from the STEM fields and we are, you know, we are there either they're there because they're interested in games or they're there because all MIT students have to do a pretty robust amount of social science and humanities classes.
1: Remind me, does MIT have a game design major?
0: Not a major. We have a pretty decent number. We have a decent number of games and game design courses within CMS. It it is actually kind of funny that, you know, if you want to do games at MIT, you, you aren't They're not doing it over in the computer science department, really. They're doing it in CMS. So we have several game design courses. We have an interaction design course that has a play. It's about play and interaction design. My course. And then there's also a group in our department, kind of a lab associated with our department, that does um, education and learning. And there's a fair amount of game stuff in that space
1: as well. Excellent. Excellent. Now, you talked about games as text. The flip side is you've produced many texts about games. (laughs) You are a published author of many books, including the 2018 title, Watch Me Play, Twitch, and the Rise of Game Live Streaming, which is also available online for free, a a version of it for Creative Commons. So this book came out a couple years ago, and you're writing about this medium that is still developing, still emerging, Twitch. I imagine that you need to be an expert in an area to write a book about it, but you probably are doing a lot of research as well. What is something you learned about Twitch and online streaming when you were writing this book?
0: Yeah. Uh, well, it's it's an it's a big question. It's an interesting one. So so I'm an ethnographer primarily, which means I spend a lot of time kind of in the field. Um, and that meant, in this case, everything from an on, online field site being in you know, streams, to meeting people in their homes, being at events, tracing out. PAX East actually was a really important site for the fieldwork. In fact, in a part of that book, I sort of talk about Twitch's presence at PAX East over a number of years, because it was very interesting to sort of see it evolve and change. So I my projects take a long time, and, and the Twitch book actually came out of my prior work in esports. And beginning to see how live streaming was changing eSports broadcast and production. So there was this kind of red thread in some ways from the eSports book to Twitch. So, But I think with the live streaming project, one of the things that that really bubbled to the top with that project was I I went in because I was interested at first uh, about with, with esports broadcasting and then very quickly saw that there were all of these, what at the time we used to call variety streamers who are trying to transform their private play into public entertainment. So I started the, the Twitch research really started, I guess probably around 2012 or so. So, you know, this kind of first early period of Twitch. And so I think, one of the things I really walked away from that project was was what the labor of doing that work really looks like. What does it mean in terms of how people are organizing their homes? How are they navigating relationships? How are they building communities? So just really thinking about the labor of play in the streaming context. So that was one, one really powerful kind of takeaway. The other thing that came out of that project was... You know, really trying to look at how esports broadcasting was changing esports in general. When I, when I did my prior book on esports, the lens that really predominated at the time was esports as sport. Like that was really the framing and the language most of those folks were using, and what I found so interesting is with the rise of live streaming, esports as an entertainment media property um, really grew, and so I was really interested in just exploring, you know, with that shift, what what sort of comes, what follows from that, and then I guess the third thing, uh, and I'm giving you now more kind of topics rather than lessons I learned. But the other third big bucket that that really informed that project by the end was thinking about governance and regulation issues um, in streaming. And that was everything from how communities govern and regulate themselves um, and kind of what, what community management looks like for variety streamers, all the way up to thinking about how, you know, Twitch as a platform um, and how law is structuring and shaping governance and regulation. So, it was a big project, <laughs> and there's lots of little nooks and crannies and all of those things. But, uh, but the the work the work of streaming is probably one of the things that really stands out in my mind foremost about that project.
1: I remember attending a PAX East panel a year or two ago that had Kate Stark on it. And she was talking about all the work that goes into being a streamer. And it's not just Mm -hmm. getting played to play video games, which is what a lot of people aspire (laughs) to and wish it was. And that's why they are motivated to try it themselves. But there's a lot that goes on beyond that.
0: Yeah. And I think it's funny. So, you know, that when I, started the work on that project, I was really interested in people who were striving to be professional, who had sort of aspirations to professionalization, because I've always been interested in that that fascinating line when people are engaged with playful things in professional or serious ways. Um, and of course, that that aspirational mode has just I would say taken over the platform in really interesting ways. Um, so, so my work was really focused on that stuff and you're, you're so right. I mean, when you really spend time talking to and looking at what that aspirational pro professionalized aspirational mode, what that labor looks like, it's, incredible. Um, there, I think there's a lot of great work now, though, coming up. I'm thinking about scholars like Mia Consalvo and some others who are looking at small streamers, people who actually don't aspire to have massive audiences, but are kind of building these small, cozy channels. And I think there's, there's also really interesting work now to, to look at that stuff, too. But yeah, my focus was on a little bit of a different
1: slice. So here's sort of a big question. You came into your studies on Twitch Based on your previous experience with esports and the two dramatically inform and correlate with each other, would we have one without the other? Could we have esports without Twitch or Twitch without esports?
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. We could certainly have esports without Twitch. And one of the things I, I... it's now probably we take it as a given, but one of the interventions I was trying to make in my esports book was actually to trace the long history of competitive gaming. Um, you know, that's, it's been around for decades. Um, and, you know, different, technological infrastructures reshape it, you know, so you can think about like the move from, I think probably a lot of people have seen the, the documentary King of Kong. So you get a glimpse of, you know, what competitive gaming looked like in the arcade days. And, you know, once you get internet infrastructures, it changes what competitive gaming can be. And similarly, you know, I think the infrastructures of streaming change, but... One of the things I try to talk about in the, in the Twitch book are the ways people were, were doing broadcasting long before Twitch. It was much more expensive and it was incredibly DIY and janky and <laughs> improvisational, but people have been trying to do broadcasting of esports for long before Twitch. So esports could absolutely exist without live streaming. Um, and I think Twitch could exist without esports. It would look really different in some, I mean, you know, that those are esports, broadcast esports competitions are high. You know they're high ticket events. I mean, lots of eyeballs in short periods of time. But in fact, Twitch is a funny platform because the majority of streamers on Twitch are sitting there with zero to five views or something. You know, it's like it's a it, there's a there's a lot more happening on Twitch than esports. So, so yeah, I, I they they have a relationship, but they can both exist without the the other.
1: You mentioned what used to be called variety streamers. I've had some on this show before. Are they no longer called variety streamers
0: it's a good qu- actually i i don't know you know this is where to you know my i i don't know the language sometimes changes so quick I, I i find yeah so i i don't know what the latest uh lingo for that is anymore but yeah <laughs> that's right. what i called them that's what they called themselves at the time
1: how do you write about a topic that is changing so rapidly especially given the lead time of books I, m- I imagine it must be like duke nukem where you keep pushing it back because you want to capture the latest thing and then by the time you're done writing about it it's outdated again
0: yeah it's it's really it, it's always the challenge especially when you do ethnographic work like i do which which takes a long time in and of itself i mean my projects usually take you know i'm in the field for years honestly i mean i think there's i think i probably have seven eight nine years between my books so you're absolutely right i think for me it comes down to a couple things one is i i really the work i do is not meant to be journalistic and capturing the of the moment. It its aims are different. In some ways its aims it has historical aims. So I am usually tr- pretty invested in trying to trace a longer story of the phenomenon. And the aims are generally analytic and critical in a different way. So that eases up some of the some of the pressure. Uh, the other thing though is just there is a pragmatics Where you just sometimes do finally make some arbitrary, semi arbitrary decisions about, okay, I I gotta be done with gathering data now. And that's a very iterative process. I mean, for me, it's usually spending time in the field and then I come to have a sense like, okay, here are the, here are the core issues I'm pretty sure I want to be talking about. And then you, you know, you, they start repeating and you get a sense of where they lay. And then you say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna close the story at this point for now. But I mean, I've, I long ago reconciled myself to the minute a book comes out it's history <laughs> and the, the for me the beauty of scholarship is um in its best moments we are all collectively involved in an ongoing conversation and there are going to be folks who come right after on the heels of my project to show changes and gaps and fill out the story so But yeah, you kind of got to reconcile yourself to that.
1: (laughs) I appreciate that you said your aim wasn't journalistic, because that's very important to distinguish with the sort of ethnographic work you're doing. With journalism, which is my background, we're very often taught to not be part of the story, to be distanced and unbiased, whereas you are embedded in the topic. You're out there not only... Interviewing people, but participating in the pastime, and do you find that nonetheless you need to separate a certain bias from the story, or is that part of the story
0: yeah it's it's a really important and complex question, so I think you know one of the things in ethnography we often see that we as the researcher are are one of the instruments of research, and in fact. That there's for ethnographers there's in and qualitative work in general, I would say there's actually incredible value in recognizing. The inter, the power of intersubjective engagement with people in the field that that you're you're not an anonymous you know blank slate, and and that can pose, for example, really interesting challenges. I find, for example, as a woman, especially when I was doing my esports project, you know, my embodied presence meant that I both had access and didn't have access to data in different ways. So, and some of it is just reckoning with the truth of of us as embodied intersubjective individuals and 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 watching for moments where that can be a strength. And then also as I always, you know, try to talk to students about watching, you know, making sure you're always also Watchful for things that will disprove your hypothesis or open up conversation or exploration in ways that may challenge your assumptions. So it's, it's a, it's a tricky balancing act. I think the other thing you pointed though too is the journalism thing is interesting because I would say, yeah, I mean, part of what I do see my work as trying to do is take up key critical issues. And by that I mean, like, I do talk really frankly and really critically about things around gender or race or moderation or harassment on the platform. There's no, you know, neutrality stance. And I, (laughs) I mean, there's a bigger conversation about journalism. I mean, certainly the way US journalism is constructed, it's sort of that neutrality stance is is kind of the, the, the the framing point. But yeah, I'm, I don't shy away from making normative points or making critical points in my work. I actually feel that's part of the part of the value of the analytic work I do. But but let me just say too though there are moments where there's fantastic long form what I think of as long form journalism that takes many many months and has A richness of data and talking to people and analysis. And, you know, I would say in those moments, there is a bit of kindredness between, you know, a certain kind of long form journalism and a certain kind of ethnographic work I do. But yeah, they are different creatures.
1: I once had a rather stodgy individual tell me that video games journalism is an oxymoron, because anybody who writes about video games clearly loves and participates in the medium. And therefore, it's impossible to be unbiased. But Uh. I find that not unique to video games because if you're a sports journalist, you probably like sports.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think this is – it reminds me of – I'm going to botch it. I I think Anita Sarkeesian has that – some great line about, you know, you kind of don't have to – we can critically engage with the things that we love. And, you know – I don't know that I'd always say I love everything I research. I, I probably felt most distanced from esports as a field site as other projects I've done. But, you know, these things, you know, being able to sort of recognize the value and virtue of something and simultaneously critique it, uh, that's to me, <laughs> that's that's uh, that's where I hope we all end up. Because otherwise, I just I don't know what, where we stand, you know, if we can't kind of recognize that that double move we have to make at all times.
1: Right. It's not just for pure passion or pure hatred. You can be yeah, critical yeah. of the things you love, as you said.
0: Exactly. That's that's exactly. yeah.
1: So speaking of being embedded in the topic you're passionate about, you are one of the eight founding members of Twitch's Safety Advisory Council, which was just formally established earlier this year. So what is this Safety Advisory Council? What problem are they trying to solve?
0: It's a group of us, Twitch brought us together to basically be there to provide feedback and advice for them. So we don't, there's not a, a singular problem we're meant to solve. Um, it really comes out of, I think, Twitch's desire to really focus on community health and safety that, you know, really think about things like community management and harassment and, you know, all of those, all of those issues we could bucket under safety. And so basically we're there, it's an interesting mix of folks, you know, there's a number of streamers uh, on the council. There's a number of us who, you know, know about Twitch or have done research with Twitch. And then there's folks who, you know, aren't, necessarily directly connected to twitch or a part of the live streaming space and yeah we're 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 just there to kind of bring our expertise and kind of the slice of of working with these online spaces that we have experience with I to give them advice and to give them feedback on a range of things
1: why do you think twitch chose to have this external council as opposed to making this an internal project or assigning employees to it.
0: I mean, it's interesting. Of course, they've got a ton of incredibly knowledgeable people inside the company. Um, So they have, they have that expertise that day in, day out expertise there. And, and it's certainly, you know, twitch standing this up it's it's not unique i mean there are a lot of now social media and platform companies who are starting to do this i mean twitter has one facebook has one so this idea of kind of having some outside advice at times is is not unusual i think when i look at the makeup of the council i mean i think one of the things that that it brings is there are people as i say who have different sets of expertise and a different kind of field of view. So I was, you know, I think for example, about Alex Holmes, one of the council members. So he's, you know, he's not situated in the gaming world. He's not a games researcher. Like I am, he's like a CEO of a nonprofit, um, Princess Diana award thing in the UK. And he started an anti-bullying program and he sits on other advisory boards. And so I think like when you bring someone like Alex onto a council, you get kind of breadth of insight that goes beyond just Twitch or live streaming or games. Um And I think that's pretty important. I mean, one of the things that I have certainly always held throughout all of my research work is that it's important. We don't set games or game platforms aside as some, kind of rarefied special space that we actually understand that they are core to culture and politics and, and kind of contemporary conversations. And so I, I think it's really smart of them to actually bring in people, you know, some of whom have, are deeply embedded in Twitch and some of whom may be bringing in other kind of breadth range to the conversation.
1: That makes a lot of sense. I've been on nonprofit committees where I was not an employee of the nonprofit, but we help to put together events. Uh, You know, we are feet on the ground when the event is happening, for example. But that is slightly different from an advisory council where you're hoping that you will be able to give advice to a technology company who will then be able to implement it in their product. Do you feel that the safety council has that level of influence? That they are being listened to, or have the authority or sway to do those things?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. It's funny because I I sit on another advisory board right now, which is Riot's um, Scholastic. Oh, I'm gonna forget it's RSAA. I'm gonna forget what the acronym stands for. It's Riot's Scholastic Advisory Council, basically for collegiate esports. Um, you know, I think. My sense with a lot of these is the, they are works in progress. I think companies are clear and aware, often of when they want to do better. They're often clear about the value of bringing in some other voices. Um, I think it's good faith effort, but you know how much how much influence any of these you know outside parties can have is. It's, I think, an open question. Um, Institutions are complex. And, you know, I think we're, you know, we're doing our best to give them some feedback. We don't, you know, we don't weigh in on specific cases. So you probably know, like, Facebook has set up a a external council that's actually weighing in on cases. Like, we don't do that. I mean, it's, it's, it's not that kind of we don't have specific details about particular people or instances. We don't adjudicate in that way. We're, you know, we're meant to give honest feedback when they present ideas or issues or possible policies. And you know, like I said, it's still early days. My sense is there. It's a, it's a very good faith effort. But yeah, institutions are complex. So you know what influence and impact looks like. I don't know. If, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> sure.
1: Well, especially with a company this big, 10,000-plus employees right. and your eight individuals, no matter what the ultimate outcome of the council is, you're probably not going to be able to draw a straight line from something you said right. to something Twitch did.
0: That's right. And isn't it – I mean, that's how I sort of feel like how – all institutions are, you know, with any key, we would do these workshops with private industry stakeholders and try to tackle complex issues. And, you know, I, I learned very quickly, you know, like change and (laughs) these things are, they are, it's a long game, you know, and it's built over many years with lots of stakeholders. And so, you know, uh, my feeling right now is, as an academic, is I'm kind of I feel like these are good faith efforts by these companies. I'm happy to to join in and give it a shot, and it's a little bit of a grand experiment,
1: <laughs> and we'll see. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm glad they have you on the council, especially with all your experience and academic ex- research into these topics. You did just mention another organization, AnyKey. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is?
0: Yeah, so AnyKey, um, was co-founded with myself and Morgan Ramine, uh, back in, I guess, 2012 or uh, 2015. Um, with the support at the time of ESL and Intel, and basically we we just Morgan. I don't know if you know Morgan Ramine. Um, she's amazing. Uh, she also has a PhD. She, she her PhD is in anthropology. So we're sort of kindreds. Um, her in anthropology and me in sociology. Morgan founded the Frag Dolls back in the day, which was I really I think it may be the first competitive women's esports team, and has done tons of work in the game industry. So, you know, we came together, we saw that there were still some really persistent diversity and inclusion issues in esports, in particular. And like I said, partnered with DSL and Intel to ramp up this organization, which was really just trying to tackle stuff uh, from a research-based approach. You know, we've done a number of things over the years. Uh, we, last year, we also brought on um, at the time, a, a postdoc, a, uh, Johann, Johanna Brewer, who's done amazing stuff with us, and continues to be working with AnyKey, um, and so we've done everything from put out white papers and best practices guides, you know, how to run gender inclusive tournaments, to trying to support some amazing community partners and initiatives. So it's it's a very multi pronged, <laughs> very multi pronged, uh, and and our remit, I would say, has expanded a little. You know, we really started with our core core heart in esports and that's still there but you can't do esports and not do gaming broadly in some ways so so in some ways we've we we kind of hit
1: hit gaming writ large can can you elaborate a little bit more on that why can you not do esports without also doing gaming at large
0: I think they're just, they're not seen, they're connected, right? I mean, people who are, you know, eSports fans and going to follow eSports tournaments are are usually connected in some way to game culture more broadly. They're spending time on platforms like Twitch. It's not, it's not siloed Um, and, and even players. So even though, you know, on the one hand we have had, we have things that are very targeted to eSports specifically, whether that's, partnering with ESL for the Women's Intel Challenge, which was a, you know, firmly professional competitive tournament to supporting college esports clubs. Um, we also, you know, we, we run. We have we have events, we have connections with Twitch and live streaming and streamers more generally. So it's just they're not siloed. Game culture is kind of a big umbrella, big tent that esports certainly sits within as well.
1: Has any key in the five years it's been around had any major events or well-cited publications or any other successes you'd like to tout here?
0: We've had a few over the years. There's a couple things I would say right now I'm really excited about. So... We are, we've just, we've sort of soft launched it. Um, so people can see it at the website. We haven't done the big PR push yet, but we just soft launched. Um, our Inclusion 101 training, which was the thing Johanna was working on this last year and and did just an amazing job with. And so the Inclusion 101 resource, it kind of pulls together some stuff we previously had, materials we had, like, you know, how to think about moderation or how to run inclusive tournaments. But it also provides, like, basic diversity and inclusion training and teaching education for your club, individuals. I mean, part of this really came from us. And I I just remember visiting college clubs on campuses and the students, they really wanted their clubs to be more inclusive and they just did not know how to get there. And, you know, Morgan and I could individually talk to folks, but we were like, can we just scale up some training so that all of these people who want to make things better have some footholds to do that? And so we had earlier this last year published um, a guideline, some help white paper for collegiate. But this training program that Johanna built out also, she just – they came up with like this terrific way of, you know, you could have this deck and here's some basic education for your club that you can work through together. Here are some exercises. So, all of that's up at the website now under Inclusion 101. So that's one thing I'm I'm really excited about that that resource. And then I guess the other really exciting thing we've we can be we're really happy about right now is we've run this um good luck have fun pledge. We, we've done it a num, for a number of years and we re- relaunched it this last year. Basically, folks can go onto the website, look over this pledge, kind of commit <laughs> to being, um, you know, good community members. Um, and then they can attach their Twitch account to it and get a little Twitch badge. So when they're on Twitch, there's like a little any key badge. And I just looked up the statistics today and we have seven, hundred and sixty thousand people who have signed that pledge
1: holy crap yeah so three quarters of a million people
0: can you believe that i mean we are the most little we we are we are just the little most scrappy organism and i guess what that tells me is like people want things to be better like this is not like we don't have millions of dollars behind it you know it's It's Morgan, Johanna and I (laughs) kind of scraping, scraping through. And yes, I was just, it's really encouraging. I I just, there are moments when I'm very pessimistic and bleak and then I see a number like that and I'm like, wow, (laughs) like actually most people want better, better spaces.
1: (laughs) Yeah. So So that number did not come up in my preparation for this interview. And my next question was going to be, how can listeners support any key? One of them would be taking that pledge.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Go to the website. There's a link at the top that says the uh, GLHF pledge and you can take, take the pledge and then you can, you can, Link it to your Twitch account if you like. So one of the, one of the most gratifying things that we found the last time we ran the pledge, we got a lot of good attention. Again, like we did not do a big campaign behind it. It was just people were excited and took it up. And one of the most gratifying things we kept hearing from folks is like they would go into a Twitch channel and see the any key badges there. And it was like a sign, like this low level culture signal, like, yeah, like, You're with folks who want to be in healthy, terrific places, (laughs) you know, online. So that's, to me, one of the coolest things about that pledge, too, just when you pop on Twitch and see it bubbling up.
1: Yeah, it can be hard to remember that the majority of people are good and do want things to be better. You know, I've heard it said that if 5% of people are toxic, on one hand, that doesn't sound like a lot. But that means, let's say you work at a company with 100 people, five of them are toxic, if you work at a company with 20 people, one of them is toxic. And that's all it takes to ruin a workplace. I know this from experience. Yeah.
0: That's a yeah. lot of people. Exactly. That is the devastating power of toxicity is that it can really take over and just – it can just crush so easily. And you know, I think one of the things we wanted to do with the Inclusion 101 training was also help people find a way – to navigate when they encountered toxicity, but also also just help them find a way to navigate like, okay, like how can I just be a little bit better myself? Like, so one of the interesting things that Johanna and Morgan did with the pledge when they launched it, when it got relaunched this last time is they, they built in a mechanism for people to report people who had the badge like say they were on twitch and they saw that they saw the badge and the person misbehaved there was a way they could report them and then there was a way for the people to actually kind of hear what they did wrong and act on it you know kind of um restorative i I think of it the big ticket word for it probably is like restorative justice but like Mm -hmm. how can you actually change your behavior because of course there's those five people who are super intentionally trolls right out of that hundred we talked about. But then there's like the low level stuff that people aren't being reflective about, or they haven't been socialized into better practices. I mean, one of the things I was so profoundly struck by when I did my Twitch research was the amount of care and attention healthy streamers brought to making their communities good that it took work It took community management. It took distributed community management amongst mods. And then eventually I remember interviewing a streamer and they said, you know, like their proudest moment was when somebody kind of misbehaved on the channel and the community intervened and kind of, you know, educated them and brought them in line and things just flowed on. The mods didn't have to step in. The streamer didn't have to step in. And so I think part of also the Inclusion 101 training is just like, how can we just give people also the tools to perhaps even be the kind of person they want to be in these spaces, if that makes sense.
1: It does, but it also does require a lot of faith that they want to be that person.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And and the companion piece is knowing they're going to be people who don't want to be good participants – making sure you have the mechanisms in place to take care of that. And that's everything from very basic stuff like codes of conduct. So we, one of the first things we did in AnyKey is we, we created a code of conduct that we said, anybody can use this. Like, feel free, print it, put it in your Twitch, wherever you want to do, use this because some of it's basic stuff. And then it's also, like I said, we have a white paper up on like how to moderate your channel. Because you're absolutely right. Not everybody wants to behave. (laughs) Uh, There are people who really are intentionally um, trying to harass and trying to police and and kind of block people from full participation. And so there has to be mechanisms to take care of
1: that as well. So I'll include a link to anykey at anykey.org in the show notes at polygamer.net. In addition to signing that pledge are there other ways we can support your organization we're thrilled when people use our resources
0: <laughs> i know it may sound like a funny way thing of for support but like Use the resources. They're there. It, it makes us – it's incredibly gratifying to know if stuff we've put up has been helpful. And um, we're going to have a really exciting announcement in the next month or so um, that will give people even more ways to support the org. So and that's a little bit of a – maybe too much of a teaser, but, like, keep an eye out uh, on our Twitter, on the website, because um, there's a really – Really cool thing that's happening in the next
1: month or so. (laughs) So we still have a few more topics to talk about. One, uh, to wrap up the discussion on Twitch and on any key. So you are advocating in many ways for safer online communities. You yourself said it's a multi-pronged approach. We have the technology of Twitch. We have the intervention, the restorative justice that you mentioned. Is it fair to say that solving online harassment is going to take all of these different pieces working in concert?
0: Yeah. Absolutely. So I think it's about culture. I think it's about, so, you know, shifting the culture of our gaming spaces. I think some of that is going to come from education and training. Some of that's going to come from things like moderation and moderation is a mix of both technology and human labor. (laughs) So it's, you know, several, several angles there. I also, I do think at its most extreme, um, I really love the work by legal scholar um, Daniel Citron who talks about things like online harassment as a civil rights issue that we really should not downplay the harm that's caused when people cannot participate online. It is a really serious issue at its most extreme. And so I think actually thinking about things like how the law and policy really take seriously Cultural participation online is important. So absolutely, it's multidisciplinary. It's multi-pronged. I think ultimately, too, I think our platforms need to do a better job working with each other to tackle this issue as well. You know, right now, I mean, the the way governance happens online right now is strange because aside, there are some categories of things where platforms will cooperate with each other to take down and that uh, often on child abuse uh, imagery sometimes called child porn, there's sometimes forms of kind of economic um, sort of economic issues that there's sometimes coordination on. But when you think about how harassment flows between platforms, there's really actually very little done. There's very little knowledge sharing. There's very little in the way of consistent policies and practices because these are all separate companies. And I think actually a lot more should be done holistically to tackle these things, that we we really can think about the flows of harassment across platforms as something we have to pay more attention to.
1: It can be a little overwhelming because you have the people who want to harass, you have the technology that fails to prevent them, you have the law that doesn't understand its impact and all of these things need to be addressed.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think for far I mean I'm not saying anything terrific critical media scholars and critical technology scholars haven't said I think for far too long uh, a lot of platforms and you know probably right now Twitter is the one that is stands out most in many of our minds on this have have tried to sort of say like they are just a neutral conduit. And you know, that is just not sufficient. Um, you know, there, there's powerful cultural participation, political participation flowing on these spaces, and, you know, kind of the retreat to neutral conduit or some really strange version of like free speech, which doesn't actually pay attention to the way people are shut out of participation through harassment. Um, we, we just have to do a much Better and more nuanced job being honest about the impact of these things on our culture as a whole.
1: Absolutely. When you choose to be quote unquote neutral, you let so many things happen that are not neutral. And that, you know, not to decide is to decide.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Sigh, yeah.
1: <laughs> Big sigh. So as, l- as long as we're looking at all these cultural implications, in an interview you gave with Public Books, you said that, quote, gaming is the canary in the coal mine for broader cultural, critical, and political issues, end quote. And I think we've seen some of that with how Gamergate preceded the current political administration, for example. So we can see- make those connections looking backward. Is it fair to ask you to look forward and say... Given the current state of gaming, what do we th- might think will happen next?
0: Yeah, Here, here's where I'm going to give the most unsatisfying answer because <laughs> I what I what what I usually say is I'm a sociologist, not a futurologist. Yep. <laughs> so, and that's in part because. Um, There is so much indeterminacy and there's so much kind of emergent practice and technology. I might, when I, for me, I really think of our world as a socio-technical world. Like, and I don't, you know, I can't predict on either side of this messy equation, um, what's going to happen. I think, you know, for me, one of the powerful Things about gaming and about play spaces is is play and gaming is always a space where people are innovating, both not just technically but socially, and there's kind of this constant creative pushing at boundaries. So and new practices emerge, and I think, you know, that's part of why I think it's usually really instructive to kind of keep an eye on what's happening there. It was really interesting to me. So you know, that the Twitch book came out a couple years ago now, and Uh, Then we kind of now all suddenly find ourselves in Zoom. And, you know, people I know who they knew what I did, but like, you know, okay, like online streaming, whatever. Like, this was now a part of their world. (laughs) You know, like whether it was they were like, oh, okay, I can't go see bands anymore, so I'm going to kind of watch my favorite bands online. Like, that world of streaming, that world of kind of online, you know, converting your private. space into public, which how many of us are, you know, sitting in bedrooms and homes broadcasting on our zoom. Um, so it's even with the streaming stuff, I feel like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, it's, we see, we see the tendrils of this even now in our current moment. So anyway, I don't have a, I'm not good at predicting the future. <laughs> <laughs> um, other than just, you know, it'll be some really interesting, messy, messy thing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, although you do bring up some interesting points, I hadn't considered how gaming culture has put us at the cutting edge of what is necessary to survive this pandemic. That's really interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I don't know about you. I mean, I I got such a kick out of I always find it interesting how like the big ticket, you know, mainstream media outlets how they cover and think about gaming and I I certainly remember when I was doing my streaming project you know again like you know I I mean I'm usually the only game scholar in a place um you know at MIT there's a few more in our department of course but like with my streaming project you know my colleagues knew what I did but whatever was like kind of side thing and then the New York Times covered Twitch plays Pokemon and the number of people who sent me emails like oh wait this is that thing you're working on I was like yeah 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 (laughs) and I kind of I had a similar experience uh, during the height of the pandemic when the New York Times covered Animal Crossing. I don't know if you remember this. It was really interesting because suddenly Animal Crossing got so popular, like you couldn't get a hold of a Switch. Like It was just like this, it kind of crossed over. And there was all this kind of these think pieces on why is Animal Crossing the game of the pandemic? And it was interesting because, I mean, a lot of us had sort of delighted in that the animal crossing world for years um but it kind of broke through. So yeah, it it is there are these moments where games and game culture pops through the mainstream in really visible ways. And you know the intimacy that zoom has brought to people sharing their domestic spaces with each other and all of the complications around that and the negotiations that was all in live streaming. I mean, I I remember talking to streamers who were broadcasting and I I recount this in the book a bit. They talk about like having to navigate being on the stream but having roommates and people moving in and out of camera view and all this stuff now that I think would deeply resonate <laughs> for anybody who spent time on Zoom calls day in and day out. So,
1: yeah. I mean, I was listening to an interview on the Major Nelson podcast with Gary Whitta, the host of Animal Talking, and he said that that is the only talk show on the air right now that looks like a talk show hmm. because all these other talk shows like Jimmy Fallon, et cetera, yeah. they're all just talking heads sitting at home, interviewing other people <laughs> sitting at home. Exactly. Whereas animal talking, you know, you have the set, you have everything else. Yeah. And yeah, well, it's funny
0: you say that too. Cause of course what all of those, you know, high end, well-paid entertainers had to contend with were infrastructure, home, TV studio infrastructure that streamers have been doing for years. I mean, to me, this was one of the most interesting things in the streaming work was seeing how people were basically creating one person, one person television studios in their home. Mm-hmm. And now we find the mainstream media, right? The, our big ticket, yeah. you know, corporate media having to re- learn all of those exact things.
1: It's been quite the equalizer. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I want to close with another area of research you've been conducting, which to me from from the outside seems very different from the areas you're so well known for. If I understood correctly from our brief discussion at PAX East, you are now researching amusement parks and Disney world. Is that correct?
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's this, it's this, it's a quirky project. It's (laughs) a little project right now. It's, it's not a book. So sometimes people are like, is this your next book? I'm like, no, it's not a book right at least right now. It's, it's, um, play in theme parks and so it has nothing to do well it has a certainly digital games intersect it to some degree so if you spend any time at Disneyland you know Disney does have a whole play app where they're doing these really strange hybrid play experiences where you're on your phone and you're in the physical space but really what I was interested were two things and again they are still a little bit threads to my prior work I'm really interested in play in commercial and corporate spaces. I mean, I've never, you know, I, I haven't, I don't, most of my work has not been spent in kind of indie gaming spaces. It's, you know, my first book was on a big MMO, you know, esports, Twitch. I, I'm, I'm really interested in how people often critically navigate commercial game spaces and play spaces. And it, you know, if you think of something like Disney, Disneyland, Disney world, I don't know that we, I mean, it's almost the epitome of a corporatized play space. So that's one thread. And the other part of it was I, I was really actually very interested in how people were experiencing these very often fantastical spaces in mundane ways. And this this really comes from one. I, I I enjoy. I mean, I grew up in Southern California, so I grew up going to Disneyland, and now that I live on the East Coast, I've spent my spent a lot of time at Disney World, and I I just the last time I was last few years when I've gone, I've started thinking, wow, I know this place really well, and I have a really different. Relationship with the fantastical, the spectacular side of it—it's a little bit mundane. And I listen—I listen to a lot of podcasts, but I listen to some theme park podcasts. And I remember hearing one once, and the guy was talking about taking his laptop to Disneyland and just working for a couple hours. And I was like, "What? What? <laughs> what? You do what?" Um, and that just piqued my curiosity. So, um, yeah. So I've interviewed about twenty people who are regular pass holders about what is it like when you are so familiar with a place that you just pop over for an hour or you know it like the back of your hand.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And has this work been interrupted by the pandemic Are people not going Uh to amusement parks?
0: Yeah, completely. Well, I did all, I mean, I did all the, I did all the interviews before the pandemic happened. And in fact, I was at Disney world myself in January, I guess it was. Um, Yeah. And I mean, I haven't, you know a lot of researchers a lot of researchers have of course like turned to pandemic focused research now i haven't done that but it is absolutely interesting hearing and seeing the conversation amongst folks who for whom you know disney was you know the backyard basically not going there or thinking about when they will go there and under what conditions you know when something that is that was formerly just a, really this everyday part of life um becomes, uh, scary or, you know, threatened, dangerous, uh, wary, you know? Uh, so it has been interesting to see people navigate that, but, um, but, but that, but I did all, but I did all the research for this I, research happened before the pandemic hit basically.
1: Whenever you mention the word play, it makes me think of course, of the strong museum of play in Rochester. Yeah. I imagine yeah. you've done some of your research there as well.
0: I've only visited once to be honest. Really? Um, uh, th- yeah. They're, they're amazing. And um, they actually run a fantastic journal that I, I'm now on the editorial board for. Um, but yeah, no, that's, that's a great spot. I, I, I've sometimes joke, you know, uh, I hope someday if my papers are my archive of East, I have, you know, like a, the amount of stuff I have, I'm a very object-based researcher. So like my esports archive of things and my, Live streaming archive of things and MMO. I just someday I keep thinking, I hope it all goes to them <laughs> if they want it long after I'm gone because uh, they're an amazing. Yeah, anybody who's in the lives in Rochester or can get to Rochester when it's safe again is it's it's well worth a visit.
1: You know, you don't have to wait until you're long gone to donate to them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's 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 true. I can't imagine not having my stuff. <laughs> I love all my little. I'm, I am really one of those people. I've always been somebody for whom with research artifacts are just such a, an, a useful way for me to rehook into the field and to remember a point or remember a moment. I don't know. I'm a very kind of visual, tactile person that way. So, but yeah, you're right. I could donate it now. <laughs>
1: So I, I looked at your CV prior to this call, and my goodness, you have published so many things, covered so many topics over such an impressive career. We only scratched the surface today. Was there anything else you want to talk about that we didn't get to?
0: Oh, gosh. Um, I'm just – I'm I'm whooshing through my mind. No, I think we hit – I mean, yeah, we hit a lot of great stuff. Uh, yeah, I mean – I'm still having fun. So that's good. Good. <laughs> yeah, no, th- no, this is it's 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 been really fun to chat with you. And and uh, yeah, I just it's it's fun also getting to share the AnyKey stuff with people, too, because that's still really alive and something folks can participate in.
1: Which is wonderful. So besides AnyKey.org, where else can people find you online?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm. well, I'm a little bit on a Twitter hiatus, but I am on Twitter at Ybika, Y-B-I-K-A, um, just sort of it's been just been my longtime game name. Um so they can find me there. Um they can also, you know, as you you mentioned at the top, um uh, if they're interested in the live streaming stuff, there's a free creative commons of the book at watchmeplay.cc so I encourage people, you know, my publisher probably hates it but I'm like don't spend the money, go grab <laughs> <laughs> go grab the free the free pdf i'm really grateful actually to princeton for for letting me uh, do that free pdf along with the book itself so yeah those are just a couple
1: places and your own website as well
0: yep tltaylor.com and i try to put a lot of my work um writing there and um yeah so yeah
1: that's another place and one more place do you yourself stream
0: Oh I I don't. I I I wish I was brave enough to. When I first started the project, I did for a little bit because I wanted to kind of figure out how the technology worked and just get a like get a sense of things, but no, I'm I'm not brave enough and I'm not I'm not actually entertaining <laughs> enough to stream, so I I leave that to the others.
1: <laughs> well, I strongly disagree on both of those points, but I'll defer to okay. you. Well, Dr. T.L. Taylor, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure to finally and intentionally talk with you.
0: Yeah, it's been great, Kim. Thanks so much. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production.
1: Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net.